Uh, let's take a moment before we get into God's word to pray together. Father in heaven, there is none like you. You are the creator of the ends of the earth. And when we look up into the sky, you, we see the work of your hands, Lord. And when we see the goodness of the gospel displayed in our life, we enjoy your grace, your mercy, your kindness. You are a shepherd who guides us. You are a father who loves and provides. You are a teacher who shows us the truth. There is none like you, Lord God. No person is like you. No leader is like you. No ruler or politician is like you. No celebrity is like you. No skilled artist or a skilled tradesman. No one is like you, Lord God. Thank you that we can know you and have a relationship with you through Christ Jesus. In the spirit, following and obeying you, our Father. So today, Lord God, we, as we turn our attention to your word, God, would you show us your excellencies? You have called us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. You have redeemed us as a people for your own possession so that we might proclaim your excellencies. Might we see this today? Might we know it, live by it, and proclaim it so that others might as well? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd invite you to open up your Bible to Ruth chapter 1. Today we're going to consider Ruth chapter 1, verse 7 to verse 22. You probably noticed as you came in that the overflow has no roof anymore over top of it. A couple weeks ago we announced that we were going to do some necessary construction, remove the roof over that overflow. Within two weeks, the roof over that overflow will be gone as well. It's, uh, you know, something that happened now, but it's actually a unique story of the purpose of this space is uh, people who were in our church before hope was in this church when another church was worshiping here they created these spaces with the overflows as multifunctional that was a library at first and there was a wall that they couldn't get into here and that was a kitchen over there and there's a wall and they couldn't get here but they built it in such a way where lord willing the wall could come down the ceiling could come off and it could be an overflow and at that time it was just one service and that service wasn't full, but by the grace of God, over time, we've seen our church expand to three services, and our services are full, overflow. So I give thanks for God's faithfulness to our church and the way that he has allowed his growth to happen. We don't boast in the numbers of people who are in the seats. We boast that there are more people worshiping our great God who is worth gathering together to celebrate and proclaim his excellencies. So it's a small construction project, but it's a part of the story of God's work here at our church. So in Ruth chapter 1, verse 7 to verse 22 today. You know, there are a few moments in life, blissful moments, sorrowful moments, that become so significant to a generation that you uh, continue to ask yourself after it happened, do you remember where you were when? Right? One, you could argue, happened this summer. Do you remember where you when the Raptors won the NBA championships? Some of you are like, no, I, I didn't care at all. Others are like, yes, it was amazing. And I went downtown, and I, it was the greatest experience of my life at the parade. You know, every generation has moments like this, the where were you when blissful moments, the where were you when sorrowful moments. For older generations, maybe the blissful moment was when you saw uh, Paul Henderson score that goal against the Soviets in 1972 when Canada won. 
for some generations, there was a once-in-a-lifetime sorrowful moment like when they heard that JFK was assassinated. And people remember where they went when they heard that happen. For younger generations, we remember where we were when we heard and saw Sidney Crosby score the golden goal in Vancouver against the States to win the Olympic gold. For younger generations, we remember where we were when we heard or saw the planes fly into New York and hit the two towers. You know, when we react to these moments, especially the moments of sorrow and the moments of suffering, our reaction to those moments say a lot about who we are. They say a lot about who we think God is. We can have personal moments like this as well that we can't forget. Moments of bliss like when our children are born. Moments of suffering like the news of the death of a loved one or an illness that you didn't expect. What would happen to your faith if you were devastated by suffering? How would you react? How, how would you react in the moment? How, what would your reaction kind of transition and evolve into as you try and process the news of devastating suffering? We're looking at the story of Ruth, and we're learning about how suffering devastated the family of Naomi. Her husband died. Her sons died. And the two women who married her sons were now widows along with Naomi. And Naomi was living in a foreign land. And there was a famine in her homeland. Last week, we learned about the context in which her devastating suffering took place when her family died. This week, we're going to see her reaction when the suffering happens. And we're going to actually see the reaction of all three women, Ruth and Orpah and Naomi. First, we're going to learn the story and see what happened. Then, we're going to look individually at each of these women and look how they reacted when they got hit with suffering two of the women will serve as a warning to us. One of the women will serve as an example to us. Even if you've settled into a decision that you regret, even if you've experienced so, such devastating suffering and you responded to it in a way that you wish you didn't, but you're stuck in a rut, even if you've settled into a decision that you regret, you can still, today, turn in faith and have hope, even in the midst of that suffering. So as we do, let's honor God in the reading of his word. Would you stand with me as we're going to read a portion of this passage, Ruth chapter 1, verse 15 to verse 18. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. You can take your seats, church. Even if you've settled into a decision that you regret, you can still turn in faith and have hope. So let's look at the story. Remember, Naomi's family had died. 
She was in a foreign land because there was a famine in her homeland. But she finally heard that the rain had come and the famine was over. And she leaves the city with her two daughters-in-law. And it seems like for a time they think they're going home with her. But then she, outside the city, she stops, kind of draws a line in the sand, and says, go home. Naomi makes an urgent plea for her daughters to leave from her. Let's read verse 7 to verse 14, and we'll see these pleas. It says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi had lived with these girls for 10 years. They married her boys, and now her family was dead, and she loved these girls, but she was convinced that the only future for them was back at their home in Moab and not at her home in Bethlehem. You see, in the cultural context, the real security, the only security long-term that women could find in an ancient West Eastern context was if they married. And that's where they could find their sense of self-worth as a mother and as a wife. But Naomi knew there was no option for that in Bethlehem. Their only future was the back of their own home. So she has to make the hard decision to tell these women that she loves, that she spent 10 years of her life with, that she allowed to marry her sons, to leave her and never see her again. And she loves them, so at first her plea is firm, yet it's gracious. She asks that the Lord would deal kindly with them and that the Lord would show his kindness by providing them a husband back home. Now this word kindness, as we learned in the past couple weeks, is a special word in the Old Testament. In the original language, it describes most frequently God's special love for his chosen people. It's translated kindness here, but in the Psalms, it's frequently translated God's steadfast love, his steadfast love that endures forever. My wife and I have some children's books, Christian children's books, uh, two by an author that we really like named Sandy Lloyd-Jones. The one book she wrote is called The Jesus Storybook Bible. The other book she wrote is called Found. And uh, Sandy Lloyd-Jones is the daughter of one of the most famous preachers of the past three generations, a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British preacher in the time of World War II and is one of the most influential preachers on evangelical Christianity. And his daughter writes these children's books. And in these children's books, she frequently um, 
translates this word in the Old Testament, kindness, love, with this like extended definition in a way that kids can understand what God's love is like. And she translates it like this. She calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that's what Naomi wants God to provide through a husband for her daughters-in-law. But she knows it's not with her. It's back home in Moab. But even after she pleads with them firmly yet graciously, the girls don't listen. So she pleads with them a second time. But this second time, she's still so convinced that their only future is back in Moab, so she's not gracious. She's actually kind of harsh. She's actually kind of mean about it. You see, it was the cultural expectation at that time that if you married into a family but then got uh, widowed, then that family you were a part of had the responsibility to provide for you another husband through that extended family. But Naomi knew what was waiting back home for them, and for all she knew at the time, there was nothing in no extended family. So they thought, I can't provide anything for you. Just go back. But then she thought logically, if they follow me, and I want them to have a husband. What can I provide for them? So she asked these series of sarcastic questions that are actually kind of self-deprecating and mean about herself. And she asks them in such a way that she doesn't really want an answer because the answer would be really mean. And she asks these questions to show them. It's like, it is ridiculous to think that you have a future with me in Bethlehem justly. If I were to hear to a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law having this conversation today, I might hear the mother-in-law ask the question in this way. Do you really think that I, Naomi, an old and uh, of the age to get married and have kids? Really, me, this old maid. And, and not just one kid. You're expecting me to get married and have twins and twin boys. And then what's going to happen? Let's say the impossible happens, and this old maid gets married tonight, and this old woman that can't have kids gets conceived tonight. Then what are you going to do? Wait nine months for my newborns to be given birth, and then get engaged to my newborns, and have a 20-plus year engagement until they grow up and marry them? That's what you're going to do? Right. Yeah. No. Just go When she thinks about the tragedy that she's experienced, she doesn't, and she thinks about the hopelessness that she believes she has, she doesn't want these fu that future for these girls. So the girls come to decision time. The line is drawn in the sand. Or Orpah makes an understandable decision. She goes back home to Moab. But Ruth, Ruth makes an incredible decision. After an urgent plea to leave, Ruth demonstrates a determined resolve to stay. Let's look at verse 15. It says, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death 
departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Twice, Naomi commanded her beloved daughters, leave. Then Naomi gives her own command. Stop telling me to leave. Then, then Naomi, excuse me, then Ruth makes a vow. A vow of loyalty to Naomi. That is one of the most beautiful, faith-filled, others-centered acts of love in the entire history of the nation of Israel. If I were to hear a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law talk about it today, I might hear the daughter-in-law say something like this. I won't leave you, but I will leave my home and live wherever you live. I won't leave you, but I will leave my people so that I can be a part of your people. I won't leave you, but I will leave my people's gods so I can worship the true God alone. And even when death takes me from you, or death takes you from me, I still won't leave you. Even when you die, I'll still stay at your hometown with your home people, worshiping your God, and then when I die, I still won't leave you because I'll be buried where you're buried. Wow. Talk about never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. What did Naomi do when she, when she saw that? How did Naomi react when she saw this amazing act of love? She gave her daughter the cold shoulder. It says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go, she said no more. When Ruth made this amazing, determined vow of loyalty, what she found in response was a cold shoulder and a long walk. After an urgent plea to leave and a determined resolve to stay, then, then they finally make it to Bethlehem and they see a shocking return home. Let's look at verse 19. It says, So the two of them went on till they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women of the town said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? This word stirred is a unique word to describe the reaction the woman had when Naomi came home. It's the same word used in the Old Testament that describes like celebratory events, like when a king, a new king is coronated, or like after a military victory and they're celebrating the conquest, or, or at a religious festival and they're worshiping God. They're stirred up with excitement. That's the same type of reaction they had when Naomi came home, or friends that they haven't seen for years. So is, this, is this Naomi? Naomi is this, is she's back. And their joy was then quenched by her sorrow. Kevin, I need your help. Sorry for putting you on the spot, but I'm sure you'll do well. Do you know what your name means? Okay. If it's not embarrassing, do you want to tell me? Wisdom. That's a nice name. I think that's an apt name for you. I think you're a pretty wise guy. Very cool. 
Smart, yeah, there you go, all right. <laughs> Smart Alec, maybe. Kevin, okay, did your parents, do you know if your parents picked that purposefully because it means wisdom, or did they just like it because it was Kevin? Yeah, yeah, okay. So I think that's the way a lot of people pick their names today. They pick it, kit names for the kids because they like their names, but not always. We saw today that a family picked their name because of uh, biblical reasons and that they wanted to see uh, God bless their family. And my name means Jason. I think my parents picked that name because they like how it sounds. Jason means healer. I don't think that they thought that it was going to be a doctor one day or have one of those like preaching ministries where like smack people in the head and they get healed. <laughs> they picked it because they like it. In our culture, it's appropriate to say, like, my name is Jason or I am Jason. But actually, both those ways that you qualify your name actually have different meanings. When you say my name is Jason, you say this is the name that's attached to me. If I were to say I am Jason, I would say that this name is me. I am Jason. Jason is me. That's not really the way we think about names today. But that was the way they thought about names in ancient times and in the Old Testament. When Naomi wouldn't say, my name is Naomi, this isn't just the name that's attached to me, she would say, I am Naomi. Names were picked because it defined their individuality. It defined their sense of being. Naomi means pleasant. And when she comes home, after such devastating suffering, and she hears people call her, is this Naomi? She gets triggered and says, that's not who I am anymore. She felt that her suffering had so devastated her that her sense of identity was demolished. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me Bitter. That was her new identity. Kind of a wet blanket, but understandable because of how desperately she was devastated by her suffering. Three women, three reactions to the devastating suffering that they experienced. How would you respond if your faith were devastated by suffering? I want us to look now in a little more detail into their reactions to see warnings and then to see examples. And I want you to know that even if you've settled into a decision that you felt you were triggered to make and forced to make because of your suffering, even if you've settled into a decision that you regret, you can still turn in faith. You can still have hope in the midst of your suffering. So let's look at the three women and their three reactions. And first, let's look at Naomi. Naomi, as we just saw, became hopelessly bitter. And her bitterness, she tried to be humble. She tried to be godly. She tried to submit to God. But she was still blind, in a sense, and unable to see the evidence of God's goodness in the midst of her suffering. Her suffering had caused her soul to sour. Not a little bit. A lot. Uh, a couple years ago when their staff, someone on our staff was going to go make a coffee run and said, hey, if you want something from Starbucks, can I get it from you? I was like, yeah, sure. Get me a tall black coffee. Because I like the bitterness of coffee. A little bit of bitterness tastes nice. 
And then they came back, and there was two tall drinks, and she gave me one, and I take a drink of it. And like Revelation chapter 3 says that God spits lukewarm <laughs> people out of his mouth. I was not given black coffee. Uh, I was given a pumpkin spice latte, and that was out of my mouth real quick. I, like, I don't like sweet drinks like in my coffee. I like black coffee because I actually enjoy a little bit of bitterness. Naomi, though, didn't say that she was a little bitter. She said that she was exceedingly bitter, that God had dealt very bitterly with me. Like someone giving you a glass of water for your soul. And you're like, oh, can I have a little lemon with it? So you get a little slice of lemon. And then you squeeze the little lemon and drop it into the glass. And then you drink the glass of water and spit it out. And there's, oh, that wasn't water, that was vinegar. That's how much Naomi's soul was bittered. But she was trying she was trying to process this in a godly way. She was trying to process this in a humble way. And we see that she's trying in the way that she names her God. Look at verse 21 again. And you look at the way that she names God. Verse 21, I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? It wasn't by accident that she called God by these two different names, the Lord and Almighty. It shows that she's trying to process this, but doesn't, doesn't get it. Almighty is the name for God in the original Hebrew, Shaddai. And Shaddai refers to God being the ruler of the universe who holds the cosmos in his hand. She recognizes that this happened and God's in control. And she calls him the Lord. This is the special name that God has to, to have show his special love for his chosen people, that name Yahweh. I am. I am the faithful God of Israel. I am the one who shows steadfast love. I am the one who loves my people with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And Naomi knows that this is the God that she serves. She knows that this is the God who caused this, this suffering, but she, she's wondering why. Notice how she says in verse 21 how the Lord has testified against me. She kind of feels like, I know you're in control, and I know that you're loving, but I feel like I'm a defendant in a trial. And God is like the lawyer, and he's accusing me that this happened and that I'm guilty, but I don't even know the charges that are laid against me. Why is this happening? She's trying to process this, and she's trying to be humble. But I do think she has become, in a manner, because of her bitterness, blind to the evidence of God's love in her life. Notice what she says to the ladies when she comes back home. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Really, Naomi? You're empty. There's no one who came back with you from Moab. There's no one who stayed loyal to you during this time. But there was, wasn't there? It was Ruth. Ruth's love was evidence of God's love for her. But at first, she gave her the cold shoulder. And when she came home, she didn't even acknowledge. Later in the story, we 
the ladies of the town would see how much Ruth is actually loved by Naomi. Later in the story, the woman would say that Naomi loved Ruth even more than if she had seven sons. But right now, in the midst of her suffering, her bitterness had blinded her to evidence of God's goodness. And maybe that's happened to you. It's understandable to lose so much, to be hurt so much, to be mistreated so badly, to try. Maybe you're trying. You're trying to submit. You're trying to be humble. You're trying to ask God. But maybe you've become so focused on the suffering that's ahead of you that you've become like so nearsighted that you've lost sight of the long-term hope that you have through the gospel. And you've even forgotten that God loved you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. Ruth became hopelessly bitter, and that bitterness caused her to be blind to God's goodness. It's a warning for us. Our suffering may hurt, but God invites us to have a long-term view and even give thanks for what we can see around us. And we can give thanks for the gospel, even when we can't see anything else. Naomi became hopelessly bitter. The other woman's reaction we want to notice is Orpah. Naomi became hopelessly bitter. Orpah chose to be cautiously comfortable. She, when, when the line was drawn in the sand, Orpah went home. And I, I don't fault her. If this was my daughter, I would probably tell her to do the same thing. It's understandable. There's no hope. There seemed to be no hope in Bethlehem. There's only risk and there's only uncertainty with Naomi. So she, she made a decision for her own self-interests. She made a decision for her own comfort. It's a reasonable decision. It's an understandable decision. I think it's the decision most of us would make. But after she leaves and goes back home, she disappears from the story. She disappears from history. Orpah's decision makes her a forgettable character. Orpah's decision makes her such a forgettable character that when I was typing my sermon into Google Docs this past week, every time I typed in Orpah, it auto-corrected to Oprah. Her decision is meant to contrast with Ruth's decision. But maybe you've made a decision like Orpah, where in the midst of your suffering, the pain was so deep and the hurt was so real that it was even more painful to have and try and have hope. That it was even more painful to think that there's actually a way out. So you made the comfortable decision, the easy decision. And you just stepped back into the background of life and you're not relating to the same people that you've related with before. And maybe you've become so stagnated in your faith and so hopeless and so full of despair and even self-pity that you feel like you're a burden to others and you're baggage to others. And so you even pull back even more and feel guilty even more. Orpah's decision was based on her comfort and self-interest. And making decisions like that can make us feel like we're not worth anything anymore and that we're just a burden to others. But even if you've made a decision that you regret, even if you've settled into a regretful decision, you can today turn in faith and have hope. You can today make a decision like Ruth made. Or Naomi became hopelessly bitter. Orpah chose to be cautiously comfortable. Ruth, on the other hand, Ruth proved to be incredibly
incredibly devoted. So incredibly devoted that it's hard to believe that anyone make, would make a decision like this. It's so bold. It's so risky. I don't know if I could make this decision. But we can make decisions like she did today. We can turn in faith like she did today because we have the hope of Christ Jesus. See, Ruth responded with incredible devotion and she demonstrated two things that I think is admirable for us that we can learn from. She demonstrated childlike faith and she demonstrated sacrificial love. Ruth chose childlike faith even when all things seemed hopeless. See, some of the authors and scholars that I wrote this, uh, read this past week compare Ruth's decision with Abraham's decision in Genesis 12. Abraham's decision in Genesis 12 is called by the New Testament authors as the model for what faith looks like. The authors I read this week said that Ruth's decision rivals and may even been greater in sacrifice and in faith than even Abraham's decision. Let's compare these two and we'll see. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham, but he asks something of him that would cost him something great. He needs to leave his family, leave his homeland, leave the gods that he worships, and go to a place that he's never been before. But this is the cost, but the incentive for him to leave is the promise that God himself gave. The incentive and the promise that his name would be made great. That his family would become a great nation and that the whole world would be blessed through his family. Great cost, but there was an incentive. Ruth, Ruth's decision cost the same thing, but had no incentive. She left her homeland. She left her family. She left her gods. She went to a place that she'd never known before, but she left with no hope and no promise of anything. Ruth could provide for her nothing, yet she still went. Was this a foolish decision? Was this wishful thinking in going? No. No, I think it was childlike faith. Because in going, she swears an oath in the name of the Lord. She knows Naomi can't provide for anything for her in uh, In Bethlehem, for all she knows, there's no one waiting for her back there. So she swears the oath in the name of the Lord. And in doing so, she says, I entrust my entire life to the Lord. She knows very little about the Lord. She grew up in Moab and probably worshipped Baal her whole life. But in this moment, this was like her conversion. Where she turned from false gods to the true God and put her faith in God alone. And I don't know what you believe about God today. I don't know how much you know about God, how long, if you've read the scriptures, if you know about Jesus, but I know that the same God that she trusted in, you can too today. And even though you may not know what your future holds, the same God who showed love and compassion to Naomi's family can do the same for you. And by putting your faith in him, he can hold your life up. Ruth proved to have a childlike faith, she also proved to have a sacrificial love. She demonstrated sacrificial love against all of her self-interests. All of her self-interests could have been fulfilled with certainty in Moab. But she left all of that so that she could be committed to Naomi. Can you think of another person in Scripture who showed such a great love that it was contrary to all their self-interests 
for the good of others? How about Jesus? He who left his eternal home in heaven and came to his own people, yet his own people rejected him. And then he lived a perfect life and lived with such a love that he didn't just love his people unto death, but he loved his people through his death and by his death. Jesus suffered and died for our sins so that we could be saved from our sins and have new life in him and the hope of eternal life in heaven. See, we may not feel like we have hope today. We may not feel like we can show love to others today. We may feel like we're only a burden and that our suffering has excluded us from being a good to others. But like Ruth, even through our suffering, we can choose to sow sacrificial love because we know that God loved us first. And because he loved us first, we can be compelled by love to show it to others. 2 Corinthians says that the love of Christ compels us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. You may feel devastated by suffering. You may feel like it's triggered decisions that you now regret. But you can today turn in faith and have hope. You can today turn in faith and be a benefit to others and show love to others. You may feel devastated and blinded by your bitterness. You may have chosen the comfortable decision. You, you may have no hope left and filled with bitterness. And the reality is as long as we're on this earth, suffering will be a constant reality. But because Christ showed us his love through suffering, and because Christ is a reason that we can have faith, even if you've made a decision that you regret, you can turn in faith and have hope. So, brothers and sisters, I'd ask you, has suffering caused you to settle in? Have you made a regretful decision and now settled into that decision thinking that there's no way out and no hope? Listen, I get it. The responses of Naomi and Orpah, they're understandable. It's understandable to be bitter. It's understandable to make the easy, comfortable decision. But maybe you've settled in such a way that you don't think you can get out. I want us to close our time together by looking at a passage in the book of James. And this will be my encouragement to you for how you can move forward in here with faith and find hope. James chapter 5. James chapter 5 addresses our suffering. It tells us what we can do in suffering. And it shows us even the purpose of how, why we read stories in the Old Testament like Ruth to give us encouragement in our suffering. James chapter 5 verse 10 says this. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Stories like Job who endured through suffering, or like Joseph who endured through suffering, or like Ruth, who endured through suffering. These are stories that show us that the blessing that God can provide through his compassion, through his mercy, is only received by those who are steadfast. 
by those who endure. And by golly, that's tough, isn't it? We know the end of Ruth's story, but you're in the middle of your story right now. And you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know how your suffering is going to turn out. So what can you do? How can you turn in faith? How can you have hope? What can you do? James chapter 5 verse 13 tells us what we can do. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. It's easy to get the list of five things. Here are the things that I can do. But if you're in suffering right now and you want to be steadfast so that you can turn in faith and have hope, the best thing that you can do is lift your eyes up to the Lord in prayer and ask that he strengthens you to endure and remain steadfast. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And you might be like, yeah, that's me. That's me. I've, I've made regrettable decisions in suffering and now I feel stuck. I feel stuck in my bitterness. I still feel stuck in my blindness. I feel stuck in my self-pity. And I want to get out. Then uh, to close our sermon, I want to give you a space in the quietness of your heart to pray right now to God. Maybe it's been months since you've actually stopped and prayed to God. This is the time where you can turn to him and ask for strength. In this moment of the quietness of your heart, pray these things. Pray that God would show you and remind you that he is compassionate and merciful, like James 5 says. Pray that God would help you to remain steadfast. And pray that his will would be done in your life. Because we see, we want an outcome. We, wanna, we want relief, but there's a purpose that you might not see that God can accomplish. So in the quietness of your heart, in the stillness of this moment, I invite you to pray in this way that God reminds you of his compassion and mercy, that he strengthens you to remain steadfast, and that you would, his will would be done in your life. And after that quiet moment, I will pray for us all. Father in heaven, thank you that you are compassionate and merciful. You are the same God today who you were in ancient times to Naomi and to Ruth. So today, Lord God, would you prove your compassion and your mercy to us? Would you show your people who are suffering today your never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, that you would comfort them in, your, in their suffering? Lord God, would you strengthen us so that we might remain steadfast? Like Colossians 1 verse 8 says, would you strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for endurance and patience with joy? <laughs> it's hard in our suffering, Lord God, to have any of those things. We can have endurance, but maybe we don't have joy. We can have joy maybe for a bit, but it's hard to endure. But would you strengthen us with the power of the resurrected Christ? so that we might have endurance and patience and joy. Show us that you are compassionate and merciful. 
Strengthen us to endure and let your will be done, Lord God. Man, that's a hard prayer to pray, Father, because that means surrendering my will to yours. Because we want an outcome. We want, we want things to be easier, Lord God. But the scripture tells us that when we pray according to your will, we will find answers. So let your will be done in our lives, Lord God. And in the midst of this, as we wait and as we remain steadfast with our eyes fixed on you, would you help us to follow you wherever we go? Would you help us to follow you with childlike faith and with sacrificial love, Lord God? It's hard, Lord God, but help us to see that the sun is shining still even though we only see the clouds below it. Give us hope, Lord God. In Jesus' name.